Howdy folks, Ryan here. Just a quick note before we get started that uh, beware, um, Alexi had a little bit of a technical malfunction on his recording and so his voice sounds like absolute crap for the first uh, about third of the episode, but but hang in there um, by, you know, 20 minutes or so in, we're back to his normal uh, beautiful sound and um, everything is fine. Everything is fine. It's good. No worries. Let's start the episode. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. Really pleased to have friend of the podcast, author, philosopher, professor, David Livingston Smith, professor of philosophy, excuse me, at the University of New England, and author of the latest in a, a trilogy, an important trilogy of philosophical texts, Making Monsters, the Uncanny Power of Dehumanization. Uh, Great titles, by the way. You always have really, really, uh, it, it fits your, your writing style, which is clear, cogent, communicates things very well. Uh, the previous titles on Inhumanity and before that, Less Than Human, all taking decades or at least a decade or more of your thinking and synthesizing them and, and evolving in a way to this culminating book. So congratulations and thank you for coming to discuss it with us. Oh, thank you. I mean, that's, that's so kind. Uh, and I really enjoy your podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's um, a great pleasure to be with you here. Butter us up, why don't you? Yeah, that's right. That's the that's the way to. Hey, we're going to do this mutually, right? <laughs> <laughs> I did no, but but quite seriously, I feel in your writing of this book that I'm walking through your thought process, and somehow both reading what is singular in your voice, which you know, let's not essentialize here. We'll get to that. Um, but but what is yours and yet what has been brought to bear from sifting through all kinds of literature and different disciplines. So I, I really appreciate uh, that. And, and it's difficult to, to interview about this because there's so much here that I think the place I want to start with is because it is so conceptually careful, you're so methodical and you proceed so carefully, um, what the stakes are of that conceptual clarity, and then we can get to what dehumanization is not, because that's an important thing that you do first. Okay, so I guess the first thing to say is I am a philosopher, so it's a professional habit to, to try and be careful. But uh, I'm also a philosopher who's concerned with things that matter to life on Earth. And the stakes are very high there. So if we're dealing with morally serious things, then I think we want to try really, really hard to get it right. Um, and when we're talking about dehumanization, and we'll get onto that in a minute, uh, the, the concept is so unclear. It's used in so many different ways that I want to be really explicit about both about what I mean by it and why it's important. Yeah. So that's, that's a good prelude. I think, you know, you're, you're taught like the, it's a kind of, I mean, it's very readable. I, I kudos for that. Like if anyone's ever read like uh, John Rawls, you know, I mean, talk about just a pile of garbage, you know, if, in terms of actually getting through it. Um, but, but you have a kind of a technical definition, right. Of dehumanization. Right. And you sort of, you start by eliminating the things that you argue it isn't and then ending up, you know, at a, at a, at a, a clear uh, spot, a definition of your own. So can, can you lead us through that to start? 
Sure. So the term dehumanization was introduced into the English language early in the 19th century. Um, and it's over time accumulated a number of meanings, um, a number of logically independent meanings. It's not that some are correct and some are incorrect. It's just a, a term that means lots of different things. So what I wanted to do, and I hope that I have done, is to settle on a meaning that I think is most useful and most significant for addressing certain phenomena. So, for instance, if we take, as I do, the Holocaust and Jim Crow as paradigmatic examples of dehumanization, I want to reject right away concepts of dehumanization which don't really address those. I also want a notion of dehumanization that not only covers paradigmatic examples, but is amenable to some kind of empirical treatment really broadly construed. And when I say broadly construed, I conceive of, say, historiography as an empirical discipline. Uh, and there are, you know, a few more criteria that I, I bring to bear. And uh, then I use those to winnow out the concepts of dehumanization, which, and there are like eight or ten of them, which are current in the scholarly literature. Um, so where I get to in all of that, or really, to be honest, what my starting point was in all of that, is to... Uh, propose the following uh, conception of dehumanization. Dehumanization is an attitude. It is the attitude of conceiving of others as less than human creatures. So it happens in your head. It's an attitude. Uh, it's about how we think about others. And I chose the term less than human creatures very um, deliberately. So I didn't say animals. I said less right. than human creatures. And that gets into the monsters and the demonizing stuff. Um, now, one thing to say about that is, although I see dehumanization as an attitude, uh, so something that goes on in people's heads, I don't think you can properly understand it just looking inside of people's heads. You have to look at what people's heads are inside of. So dehumanization, as I describe it, is a psychological response to political forces. Um, and one of the problems with a lot of the literature and almost all the literatures in social psychology is the tendency to just look inside people's heads and not look at what people's heads are inside of. And I appreciate that because, you know, in truth, psychology and the you know, broader social sciences uh, obviously are depicting processes that are entangled in, in practice in real life and looking at them from different angles. But they often, I think, forget that they go together in practice and have to be understood as such, right? Uh, so yes. I think that's, that's very important. And, and I want to ask a related question because you quite uh, interestingly depict dehumanization, as you said, as an attitude, uh, as opposed to other accounts that see it as a kind of action. 
And, um, and this is especially interesting to me because you're describing the process of attitude formation as very much related to social practices and politics and ideology, right? So, so maybe walk us through, because that's a tricky thing to disentangle. Um, what is wrong from the accounts that mistake, I think as you put it, the cause from the effect, right? And the difference between understanding dehumanization as a belief or attitude as opposed to the way that people treat other people. Well, there's a lot wrong with it. I mean, one of the things that's wrong with it is that uh, it, so if we treated dehumanization as simply a form of activity, uh, then this would rule out people who don't get their hands dirty, basically. So I use the example, uh, I think in the chapter you have in mind, of spectacle lynchings. So these were lynchings in which, they were public lynchings in which usually black men were tortured for hours and then burned to death. And they attracted crowds of thousands of people, 10, 15, 20,000 people in some cases. Now, most of those people were spectators. They, they weren't doing the torturing. <laughs> they weren't even urging on the torturers. And yet, I think it's reasonable to think that these spectators who were enjoying the show were dehumanizing the victims. Interestingly, that, let, tell me what you think about this. This reminds me of Arendt's concept of power in which, and she gives an example of, say, a heckler of a professor in the classroom uh, who, because of the power exercised by the class to not interfere and to allow the heckler to proceed, in a way, is a form of action on the part of the, of the class that power is being, right? And so there's a relationship between the ability of the actual person doing the act and the attitude or the permission given because of the attitudes of the spectators. And, and so, I don't know, what, what do you hmm. think of that relationship? No, I think, that's, I think that's a really insightful comment. So if we include in actions refrainings, then uh, you could see at least some manifestations of dehumanization as actions. If, if, you, if you don't do anything, you're kind of doing something by not doing anything. Um, I'm, I doubt if that will cover all the cases that I want to cover. Yeah, sure. Surely, I mean, yeah, you mentioned the <clears throat> like the Holocaust. That that there was a lot more. The a lot of a lot of people participating in that one. Um, but uh, I I wanted to to I think I guess like a natural sort of question that would that would come up. You know, you have your your kind of theory of dehumanization. You know, and how it's coming out of like political relationships. Um, what, you know, what is the point of it? Why, why, how does this uh, come about? Like you, like you kind of argue that at least in some, it's in some context, it serves a kind of political function. And what, what is that function? Do you, do you say? Well, I see dehumanization as, um, as ideological. And in the book, I articulate a particular thesis about what ideology is, um, to, to make a long story bearable, uh, the, my view of ideology is ideologies are systems of belief and treat that as kind of an abbreviation because there are always practices that flow from beliefs and so on. So systems of belief with the function of promoting oppression. 
Um, so promoting includes a lot of different things. But what's important in this account is the term function. Now, um, the literature on function in philosophy of biology, which is what I'm most familiar with, distinguishes two conceptions of functions. One conception of function is just straight up causal. It's what a thing does. So doctors talk that way often. They talk about lung function or heart function. The other notion of function is what a thing is for. So what a thing is for is not necessarily what it does. In fact, something can be for something and only very rarely actually have the effect that uh, that coheres with what it's for. I use the, the latter notion, which is very nicely theorized by a philosopher named Ruth Millikan. So ideologies then are systems of belief that are for oppression. They have a role. They're not, they don't just happen. They're directed at something. But it would be a mistake to think that this they get this function through some kind of necessarily through some kind of intentional activity. Right. So it would be a mistake to think that people think of, say, black men as less than human in order to oppress them. Rather, I see. And I draw on Millikan again here function as something which occurs as the result of of the reproduction of beliefs because they systematically advantage one group of people over another. So this is part of it. Dehumanization isn't just a psychological state. To understand dehumanization, you have to look historically and socially and politically at the genealogy of ideas, the genealogy of beliefs. Um, secondarily, and this is related to the point you raised, although it's slightly to the side, but it's extremely important. Dehumanization doesn't just arise spontaneously from within. And I gesture to that by describing it as ideological. It's not like you're you know, sitting around and you get the idea that some group of people is less than human. Rather, dehumanization, I think, um, arises from, a from the... Um, the cognitive division of labor that we find in societies. So there are people that we endow with the authority of the experts, the people who are supposed to know. And we do this all the time and we have to do it. It's necessary for cumulative human culture. So, so the physicist tells me that the table in front of me here that my computer is on is mostly empty space. Well, my eyes don't tell me that, but I accept it. Why? Because the physicist is the person who's supposed to know. The physicist is the expert. The problem is that this makes us vulnerable. We have, we have to take these things on trust. Dehumanization tends to happen, I think, when people in positions of authority promote the idea that although these others look like human beings, they're not really. And because they're the people who are supposed to know, it's, it's attractive and even rational to take on what they tell us. That's interesting. That just now occurs to me. Is, is that uh, part of why 
these ideologies tend to spring up in the context of very hi hierarchical uh, norms and, and ideologies and, and, and systems where authority or, or your superiors are to tell you how to think and so forth, as opposed to more egalitarian uh, systems of thought? Um, in terms of... Yes, yeah, no, no, I, I, right? yeah, I, I'd want to... I, after this, after this conversation, I'd want to go back and think about this for myself. It's tricky because I immediately think of the counterexample that you gave of the Enlightenment liberalism, which which uh, wasn't intending, of course, to in, enshrine uh, you know white supremacy, but even in per, you know promoting equality and liberty at the same time gave cover to white supremacist uh, practices and so forth. But so so that is one counterexample I just thought of, but. Um, I, I, I don't know, because there is something today about, I think the epistemology piece is really significant. But, uh, what do you make of the kind of do your research uh, kind of attitude about, among so many anti-vaxxers and others today that have this, um, I, I think, comparable way that a folk, folk epistemology where expertise matters, but like anyone can be the expert and they can decide who the expert is and so forth. Well, that's exactly the problem. Right. So, you know, people who I know who are anti-vaxxers and say they have done their research and they have, they've done impressive research. The problem is that those whom they regard as the authorities are not in a, not in a position to deliver the truth to them. But I'm extraordinarily impressed by the thoroughness with which they go into these particular sources of information and can, you know, blind me with not well, not with science, but certainly blind me with claims. Um, the Gish Gallup. It's like arguing with creationists back in the Reddit atheism days. Yes. Uh, yes. You got oh, 700 different claims about studies I've never heard of and some some jack off in the, you know, <laughs> Omaha <laughs> Department of Medicine. And like, I don't, you know, yeah, you can't, you can't fight them. Right. So what's, what's really, really important there socially, I think, is making sure to the best that we can. And like all such matters, this is defeasible and vulnerable and so on. Making sure the best that we can, that those in positions of epistemic authority are authoritative. Yeah, they're not full of shit, as I would say. Yeah, <laughs> the, that's. I want. I'm not a philosopher, but I. But I've seen one on TV. Um, but I want to return really quick, really quickly before we move on to to this the function, maybe maybe not using in the in the correct uh, uh, fashion as you have, but the the, the usefulness of of uh, dehumanization in a political context could because you talk about. Uh, automatic revulsion that people have towards committing violence, uh, especially like really explicit violence, like shooting someone like a helpless child, like directly in the face, like almost all people have uh, 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 just like a visceral, like pre, like almost a lizard brain type of, I mean, maybe not lizard, maybe it's mammalian brain, maybe it's homo sapiens brain some kind of reaction to that. And you have a story about Himmler in there, which I had never heard before, which is very interesting to me. And, and I think is very strong evidence for your sort of picture of this, but can you tell that story and how it sort of relates to this? Yeah, sure. So maybe give the background first and then yeah. that'll frame the story. So look, we homo sapiens are highly sociable 
creatures. We're uniquely sociable creatures, actually. There's no mammal that comes anywhere near to our sociability. And our, one of the remarkable things about us is our sociability is not limited to immediate communities, which you find in other social species, right? So it's not the local breeding group. We know that since prehistory, human beings have reached out, engaged in trade relations with distant communities and so on. This is this is how we're fashioned. I mean, to the extent that evolution comes into my story, it's with respect to this. And this is utterly non-controversial scientifically. But we also are capable of thinking instrumentally and recognizing that it can be materially advantageous to members of a society to do violence to others. Um, steal their stuff, enslave them. You know, that the old story that goes back to the origins of recorded history. Now, if it, any social animal has to have inhibitions against severe forms of harm, particularly lethal harm, that's just how it works. You know, Thomas Hobbes told us this, basically. You can't be ripping each other's throats out while maintaining a social existence. So, you know, Hobbes thought this had to be enforced externally. The, the picture that, I'm, that I favor is that we are endowed, like other social animals, with powerful inhibitions against these sorts of behaviors towards others. But those powerful inhibitions can be overcome. They can be disabled. Dehumanization is one of a number of ways that we clever primates have found to selectively disable inhibitions against doing terrible, terrible things to one another. Um, and to connect this with what I said about those who are supposed to know, it's people in positions of authority who, and this, this, this might be straight up propaganda like like Joseph Goebbels, but it might be distributed through a community. People in positions of authority can tell us not only that these others are not human beings, and therefore the sorts of 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 uh, I started to say norms, but I hesitated to, to use that term. The the what would come naturally to us. Uh, does not apply to them. Let's put it that way. But uh, all the stronger, they give us the impression that doing harm to these people is is uh, obligatory. That we do it in self-defense. We do it in the in the you know in the service of morality or goodness or you know everything that's decent in human life. And we see this in the worst things that people do to one another. They're the very worst things that people do. Genocides are virtually invariably moralistic enterprises. You know, the people doing these terrible things to other people think that they are in, the ser they are in service of the good. It's an obligation. And so when we present others as dangerous predators, as disease-carrying vermin, or, you know, apropos of the most recent book, demons and monsters, evil beings, 
And this, this is a way that these inhibitions can be overcome. To, to set you up for the, the Himmler line, because I think this plays in really well with, you know, the, the end of the book is very interesting in how you reconcile the, the seeming, I mean, not the seeming, the contradiction between uh, dehumanization that treats people and thinks of people as subhuman, but also the people that have those attitudes clearly exhibit uh, and, and practice in keeping with the idea that they are also human. And, and so y- you actually say there's a psychological reason for this. It, it might be logically contradictory, but it is both, it's true that they both think uh, the people being dehumanized in their minds are fully human and fully subhuman at the same time. Yes. And this is where the, this is where the monstrosity comes in. So uh, if you want to speak to that a little bit. Because sure. That's, that's... So let's, let's do it through Himmler because I, I never addressed the, the point that Ryan began with. So um, the Holocaust began, the actual killing began with bullets. The Holocaust of bullets took place in, in, in Eastern Europe as the Einsatzgruppe and the mobile killing units swept through behind the, 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 the army and rounded up those whom they considered to be commissars, you know, influential communists and Jews and put a bullet in the back of their head. So there were these huge killing pits, basically, like Babi Yar. Um, but this took a lot psychologically out of the killers, the, the Germans who were, you know, doing their duty. Uh, they drank a lot. They uh, they suffered from what the Nazis called Seobelastung. The, the burdening of the soul, it was driving them nuts, a lot of them. Not all, but a lot of them. And there was a, an occasion, according to the reports, that Himmler came, and Himmler, of course, was the the Reichsführer SS, the leader of the SS, um, and to witness one of these killings, and he, he, like, freaked out. He couldn't handle it. And it became clear to him that what was needed was a more, and this is how they talked, a more humane way of exterminating the Jews of Europe. And that was the inspiration for the death camps and the use of Zycom B gas, right? It was cleaner. It was, it, it was less traumatic for the Germans who were, and, and Germans and the Ukrainians and others who were doing the killing. So, so yeah, I mean, when, whenever people commit atrocities, they have to find ways around the completely understandable and natural human response of revulsion to the commission of these acts. Now, that's related, uh, Alexios, to the question that you just asked me. So if let's kind of rewind the, the video to... 2011, when I wrote Less Than Human. When I wrote Less Than Human, I had this idea that what's going on with the organization is we conceive of others as, as subhuman animals. And there's a lot of analysis on what subhuman means and, and so on. Well, there are a couple of problems with that. One problem is that... Um, 
if, if you actually look at dehumanizing discourse, dehumanizers don't consistently refer to those whom they dehumanize as rats or lice or whatever. What they tend to do is flip-flop between describing them as human beings and describing them as subhuman creatures, um, often in the space of a single sentence. So that's led some philosophers to be skeptical of the whole idea of dehumanization, right? That, well, they obviously acknowledge these people's humanity, so they couldn't be dehumanizing. I call that the problem of humanity. The other point, the other criticism of my 2011 thesis, which as far as I know, I'm the only one that's made of my own work, is that when people are dehumanized, certainly in the most dangerous, the most toxic forms of dehumanization, they're conceived not just as non-human creatures in the sense of non-human animals, but as something a lot scarier, demons and monsters, either explicitly or implicitly. So now the question is going on, how, how can I deal with these two? issues. Clearly, the picture of dehumanization that I developed back in, in, in 2011 is problematic with, in these respects. And after doing a lot of thinking, a lot of researching and so on, I decided that there's one tweak that not only solves both problems, but gives a much, much, much deeper um, uh, explanation of the distinctive phenomenology of dehumanization as I understand it. And that's the following. So if we go back to what I said about being highly social animals, being a highly social animal means that we are exquisitely attuned to what I'll call here, it's a little bit problematic, but I'll call it here, the humanness of others. So in other words, when I look at your face and you look at my face, we recognize a kind of sameness, a kind of kinship. And that happens automatically. We don't have to deliberate about it. Is it's that because we're all very, very good looking? Is that what you mean? Yeah. It's <laughs> brilliant. Okay. I'm glad you pointed that out. Now back to the book. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're, of course, that only applies to the three of us. <laughs> the three of us. Yes. The holy trinity of attraction. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Apologies. I derailed you. I, I apologize. No, no, no. I like that, that kind of derailing, believe me. Um, so I look at you, you look at me, we see human. Bang, gut level, automatic, can't help it. But when we listen to, say, Heinrich Himmler or one of the numerous uh, race experts in the United States during the Jim Crow era, we, we get a different picture. That although these others might look human, they're not really. They're they're really sub. They're beasts. They're you know they're they're apes. They're vermin and so on. So what's happening there? On the one hand, we've got this response that we can't turn off. Seeing human. On the other hand, we epistemically defer to the authorities, non-human. I think this leaves us with a contradictory picture. That we conceive of the other, the dehumanized other, as wholly subhuman, if we're listening to Himmler, 
but wholly human if we're listening to our gut response, which we can't help listening to. Now, that I think is a very, very toxic mix. Paradoxically, it transforms the other into something very disturbing and monstrous. Wholly human on one hand and wholly subhuman on the other. It's an impossible, the other becomes an impossible being. And that's the uncanny, that's the, the uncanny feeling, right, right, that you get. I'm, I'm right. looking at somebody that I know is not human, it's it's demonic or something, but then I that part of me that knows and recognizes the human, you know, that dissonance is, is the uncanny, yeah. Yes, that's 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 my Very view of how this works. And that amplifies the sense of dangerous their dangerousness. I mean that that's almost epistemically uh verifying for the person phenomenologically, I would think. That uncanny feeling, right? It, it almost serves as a as a as a confirmation bias, right? Good. Maybe. Yes. Yeah. Perhaps. And that actually that that it just strikes me just now that this kind of your picture here kind of resolves one of the the things that always kind of bugged me about the way that the Nazis would talk about the Jews. And uh, I think a lot of anti-Semites continue to talk about the Jews that like they're simultaneously this intermention, like these disgusting beasts who also control all of global politics and finance and everything at the same time. It's like, it doesn't make sense, but it doesn't have to make sense. This is not a, on the level of like logical coherence. That's right. This is something that often philosophers don't get because philosophers idealize logic and coherence. And so they, they tend to assume that psychology follows those sorts of rules, but it doesn't. We're perfectly able to entertain gross contradictions. And that's a very good example. The Jews are nasty, bestial beings that are in control of the banking system of the entire world and are plotting deviously to destroy the white, white race, right? Yeah. There's no problem for them doing that. And that merely makes them more despicable and dangerous and horrifying and uncanny. So, uh, well, I, I have a, maybe a little bit of a side question here, but, I, but you have an account in the book about, uh, uh, racism and like psychological essentialism and how this kind of plays into the, uh, uh, the the system like the mechanism of dehumanization and kind of helps perpetuate it um and i thought that uh it's kind of interesting kind of plays on some uh contemporary debates about like you know the persistence of, of prejudice and so on could you could you go into that a little bit sure so i think that dehumanization is intimately bound up with racialization um so i see race as an ideological construction so the idea of, first of all, what are we talking about when we're talking about race? That's a starting point. You ask students like I do when I teach this stuff, you know, well, what is race? And they are flummoxed at first because it seems to them it's perfectly obvious what race is, but they can't quite find a way to put it into words. Then eventually they'll say, well, it's the color of your skin. Well, it's very easy to show that that's grossly inadequate, right? Let's take two examples. One is the Third Reich. 
right? So Third Reich, the Nazis, they were obsessed with race. It was a racial state. What race were they particularly, what race, I'll put it in scare quotes, were they particularly you know, obsessed about? Jews. But the problem for them was that plenty of Jews looked just like them. <laughs> their yeah. hair was as blonde, their skin was as, as pale, their eyes were as blue. So that right away shows you there's something wrong. The, the, the skin color thing is way too local, and I, I think it misconceives the role of skin color in some forms of, of racial thinking. The other is the phenomenon of passing. So in any racist state, the, the, there are members of the subordinate race who, because of their appearance, are able to present themselves as members of the dominant race. This happened a lot in the United States. No one knows how frequently, but a lot. Well, the idea there when someone passes, let's take the American example. They're really black, but they look just like a white person. Well, that shows us, that in the previous case shows us that race can't be just a matter of appearance. Appearance is significant, but it's not constitutive. That is how you look doesn't in, in ordinary ways of racial thinking, and I keep putting this in scare quotes because I don't believe in race. I right. think it's just an evil ideology. It, it, be, yes, be, be what people call race is this fair, David? What people call race is is um, the, the skin color and so forth is symptomatic of the of the metaphysical illusion that you say doesn't exist. Right? Yes, that's that is my view. It's the the appearance. Let's broaden it out from skin color. Yeah, the appearance. The, the appearance is an indicator of something that's supposed to be deeper, something about what kind of a person this person is. So it's like, to use the analogy I use in this book and indeed my previous book, it's like the relationship between a sore throat and having a cold, right? You don't have a cold because you have a sore throat, but rather having a sore throat is a consequence of having a cold. Well, it's the same thing with appearance. So it's diagnostic. But it's defeasible. The passing example shows it's defeasible. Okay, so what's going on there when people think of other people as belonging to a race? Well, I think there are three components. Uh, one is that these uh, that these others are a fundamentally different kind of people from us, fundamentally different. Two, the kind of person they are is transmitted biologically, usually by descent, but not necessarily. There's some variations. So there are some Nazis that thought that if a woman had sex with a Jewish man, it's kind of made her Jewish and her, her children would be Jewish. <laughs> Well, to be fair, David, look, well, to be fair, semen and blood are both fluids. And uh, I see, I mean, ipso facto by the transitive factor, boom, you pass it on. Exactly. That's, that's, makes sense, that's, makes sense to me. that's how the logic works. That's, that's science, it, David. That's just science. The, the third component is, is maternal milk. People don't right. believe that race could be transmitted orally through, you know, suckling a wet nurse. 
the more we talk about this, the, the, the folk metaphysics and science and, and it seems to me, again, I, I'm thinking of the anti-vaxxers who, who like, they believe that race exists and they will racialize, but they don't believe that the coronavirus exists. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Like, folk the, the, metaphysics is like way more powerful than anything. Yeah, boy, it's a hell of a drug. Yeah. You can't, you can't, uh, transmit coronavirus orally. I know that. That's, uh, I read that on Facebook. <laughs> And I want to just just to divert a little bit. Your 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 uh, picture there reminded me of a story I read some years ago about a police officer in some like rural American town who uh, basically was passing by accident. Like he he uh, he thought he was white, appeared white um, by American standards of race. Did the twenty three and Me thing? Found he was like twenty five percent black. And had no idea it was like the milkman or something like back some years ago. And then his uh, uh, police officer comrades naturally started treating him completely differently. They started leaving like Ryan. racist notes in Ryan. his like locker at work and shit. And was- Ryan, uh, you're, f- you're, you're seriously going to be fired if you ever use police officers and comrades in the same sentence again. I was ironically, ironically, okay. not right. real. Just, uh, that, the the okay. I, irony. Appearance reality distinction. Appearance reality distinction. Okay. As demonstrated by what they actually did to this poor sap, which was. I think he ended up resigning, you know, because he was getting so much abuse and hazing there. There were, you know, it was like all these, uh, 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 like racist items. I forget exactly what they were like leaving on his patrol car, but it shows you, I think, you know, what you're talking about with this sort of like internal essence was like, Oh, now that we know you have the black thing in you. How many many films and TV shows from, you know, the, the uh, middle of the century were there when, you know, someone comes to the classroom and, and, and and picks up uh, her daughter, but they're surprised that the mother's black and everyone looks at each other. I didn't know she, I didn't know. I didn't know. Right. Yeah. That Uh, makes her black. So it's it's the appearance thing is, as as you said, merely symptomatic of the essence, which is the the, the core of what a, a person is supposed to be. Now, th- there's a third component, um, and that this is the the most controversial component of my analysis. Mm. Racialization has racism built into it. That is, the racialized other is inferior, in a very basic sense. Uh, now, the reason why that's controversial is a lot of people think you can clean up race. You can like racism is something extraneous to race, which is just attached to it. I don't think so at all. I think as an ideological structure, if we look historically, race, the very idea of race has the function in the sense of purpose of oppression. And that's just how it is. And one can push back, one can protest, but the social meaning of race is hierarchical. Well, this makes sense to me because, and I keep thinking, forgive me because it, you know, this might remind you of Aristotle and we'll all be triggered. But like the the second, the the second definition of function that you give reminds me of of teleology or telos, right? Because it's design, purpose, function in in, in that sense. And I do think that race was designed for the, for the purpose, the goal, right? Of racialization. Um, and, And, you know, you can't separate those two, right? Yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And we're, it's a pipe dream to think we can clean it up. Now, my view and, and the view of my spouse, 
who is Jamaican, by the way, is that the very idea of race is, is an evil fiction. And as long as we keep affirming it, we are perpetuating the white supremacist project. If, irrespective of our intentions, a lot of people who affirm race are affirming race for the right reasons, but they're affirming something which is ideologically just destructive. That reminds me of your of your last book on inhumanity, because this is so tough for people because of the way that language games are different, right? And different uses of terms and different contexts have different, you know, uses. Um, you, you might think that we're saying that, that people who are designated by racially, right, that they're not allowed to own the things that, that, that they feel, uh, belong to the groups that they associate with, to their history, to their culture. And, and like, it's a denial that that exists or is meaningful. And that's not the thing at all. What, you know, it's like saying, witchcraft is real, but witches are not, right? Yeah, and so the, exactly. pe the people, right? So the, there are people being victimized by racialization, but the people are, of course, real and their lives are meaningful, but we need to get rid of, of the thing that's oppressing them, right? So this, this homogenization yeah. is, it's just false, first of all. People racialize in a certain way. They're, look, ethnicities are perfectly real. Histories are perfectly real. There are groups of people with certain histories. But to lump them together on the basis of this ideological construction that was designed for oppression is just wrong. And it's a further assault on their humanity, in my view. And the problem is we've drunk the Kool-Aid. I mean, it's it, it's what I'm saying to you now is a hard thing to say and be taken seriously and not be suspected of being some kind of right wing nut. Um, so, so anyway, what would it look like, David, so to give, help people out with this, what would it look like to not, uh, keep feeding the illusion of race as a reality and fight racialization as a real practice? Like, what does that look like? So people understand what we mean in, in terms of maybe political action, right? Or attitudes. even. <laughs> well, it, all that it's the only difference it's going to. You, you could let's take as the point of departure people's anxieties about this proposal. So people feel they would lose something. Well, what? All that's being lost is a derogatory, fictional account of human beings. Nothing else is lost. The history of oppression. In fact, I think it gives us an enhanced appreciation of the history of oppression if we let go of this stupid idea of race. Um, and it, it gives us greater appreciation of the unique cultural circumstances of different populations. So look, I said my wife is from Jamaica. She's a philosopher too. She's from Jamaica. She's not African-American. It's different. I hear that Jamaica is nowhere near Africa, in fact. That's, <laughs> That's that. right. It's nowhere near Africa. Glad to, thank you for confirming. Yeah, no, so, but okay. So, uh, for example, uh, let's say we want to construct a public policy that uh, addresses various ailments of oppression in the body politic. If we identify, are, are we racializing people and perpetuating the reality of race 
to designate groups of people who have been racialized and have been harmed in, in various ways in order to alleviate those oppressions in policy. Is that perpetuating the problem or is that a different use of uh, a category or something? How do we think through that kind of? Right. So I think the racial categories. So you could say you could use them as in kind of a thin way, right? In principle. Um, so you could say everyone from the African diaspora is black. That would be like saying tall or, you know, okay. gotcha. whatever. But the problem is yeah. that racial categories elicit essentializing views to such a degree that as yeah. soon as you use them, it's right down the drain. It's very difficult to maintain that thin notion of race. So given that, I think we should avoid it entirely. So socioeconomic, that kind of targeting that doesn't. Yes, or historical, you know, okay. whatever. They're neighborhoods. Yeah. The, you, you could, when you, I mean, you think about just like white and black, you know, so white saying like the bracketing some complexity, basically like European and the European like descendants, like there's gigantic. Gigantic diversity from the, in that group, you know, from Ireland to the Caucasus to Russia, you know, and black from Jamaica to Algeria to fucking Equatorial Guinea, all the way down to the Zulus in South Africa. I mean, a gigantic diversity, like with the the those. There, there is probably, there's more, I mean, genetically speaking, right, as you point out in the book, yeah. there is more diversity within those groups than there is, uh, between, between like, them. To, to, between the yeah, groups. like, that it's not really, you can't draw a circle except ideologically, as you say. It's like the, you have the, you know, the Igbo in Nigeria and the Zulu and all these, uh, the, the various hundreds of different, you know, sort of ethnicities and so on. But like to just say black, you know, just like draw a magic marker which, across. Which is so tricky because we do want to, as you said, David, uh, affirm history and particularity and difference and culture. And, and we, we want to appreciate diversity and appreciate different stories and narratives. And, and in this country, especially where there's such a resistance to actually knowing our history and actually knowing what, what we've done. Um, this is so complicated politically because there's this desire to say, no, 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 this group of people, let's call them white, have done these terrible things to these other people, right? And, and, and yet we have to do that in a way that doesn't re-entrench that illusion that race is a reality. Exactly. It's, it's, you so know, difficult. I get, I get more pessimistic by the day. It's a challenge. <laughs> with respect to this, but I, 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 I really think, challenging this notion of race in a full-blooded way. I, I see it as a moral imperative. I mean, let's th try and think, what's the most evil idea that human beings have ever come up with? Well, I think race is a, a real good contender for this. And by no stretch of the imagination is this notion to be celebrated. Um, it's, it's, it's wrong. It's bad. It assaults people. And and we should dispense with it. And, you know, that's just about race. We could leave dehumanization aside and just, you know, I would be there preaching against the notion of race. But race is also a precursor to dehumanization. I, you know, philosophers like to talk about necessary and sufficient conditions. I think in the real world, 
nothing is necessarily sufficient. These are logical constructions. But racialization comes pretty damn close. So if we look historically, groups of people who are dehumanized are first racialized. And dehumanization is just taking that a little further. So if, if, if I'm right about racial ideologies, they demote people. They're, they, they classify people as second-rate human beings or third-rate human beings. Dehumanization just takes that a bit further. Well, they're not human beings at all. They're less than human. And therefore, we can do a lot worse things to them than we could otherwise do. Yeah, How and does, that oh, – I, I Just to drill down on that point real quickly, um, you know – it's it strikes me that that there's there's a sense in which like this you know the 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 looking at the worst examples of racist violence um the holocaust rwandan genocide you know the the um the similar um occurrences throughout history it's it's sort of like it turns the the you know dehumanization being born as uh type of justific justification for doing violence to people that is to to an advantage of a particular group and going around the other side and becoming like a massive disadvantage you know it's like what's the worst thing that ever happened to germany well it was starting world war ii you know and going to conquer eastern europe so that you could kill all the jews and just getting absolutely stomped at the end of the day by the soviet union losing all of east prussia like like 12 million Germans killed, uh, the massive population transfers. I mean, just utter disgrace, defeat. Um, something like that happened to the perpetrators of the Rwandan genocide, not to the same degree, but it was a, similarly like a massive backlash being invaded from the outside. Uh, uh, the, the, the genocidaires, you know, they, they, I guess they call them back and they like, a lot of them got killed. Uh, you know, it was a total disaster in terms of any kind of conception of self-interest, you know, and it's where like the, the, uh, conception of, of like where people felt compelled and they went, they went above and beyond any kind of idea of this being about helping ourselves to just like a kind of frenzy of mindless hate and violence. Right. And so, can you talk a little bit about like that, maybe how the kind of like racism interacts with this to uh, uh, dehumanization to drive people to like what like a political madness, you know, like like there's stories, right, of of the Nazi uh, 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 Nazis like harming their war effort, like to, so that they could kill more Jews, you know, while they're like the Soviets are on the march and they're just hard pressed and they're losing territory. And it's like, Oh, we've got to kill as many Jews as possible. And like, you're out of your fucking minds, man. Yeah. Well, and, but, but they, they were. were. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do if your, your mission is to combat evil and evil is, it's embodied in Jews, right? Every, anything yeah. is worth sacrificing for that that noble moral aim. And that's how genocidaires tend to see this thing. It's certainly how the Nazis tended to see it. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really important not to underestimate what's going on in people's heads 
when they're in the grip of this sort of ideology. I mean, it's it's a battle for civilization. It's a battle for the world. The killing of Jews, it's arguable. The killing of Jews was the war. I mean, that was the point. Yeah. The, the, the point was a, 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 a racial... Um, uh, it, it was a racial project. Right. And then there was lots of stuff on the side. Right. But yeah, but that was the integrating notion. Now, you gave example, the example of Nazi Germany and how Germany suffered. And it was indeed terrible, terrible, terrible. But you see, the, the, the thing is, they didn't get away with it. <laughs> History yeah. caught up with them. But white Americans have gotten away with it. Right. Yep. We can talk about the genocide of Native Americans. We can talk about the brutalization of African Americans, but but white America was not defeated. So we have, in in a sense, escaped the fate of of many others. Now we haven't reached the final reckoning yet. God knows what the future is going to be. And we we still uh, are avoiding it insofar as I mean, we had philosopher Brad Evans on uh, a little while ago, and, and and key to his most recent book was uh, in liberalism, especially how sacrifice and the idea of sacrifice has been the root of violence, and and obviously obviously right, and and, and it's so we, we we talked about um, you know Afghanistan as a, as a recent example, and even just the the haranguing of of leaving Afghanistan because we we have to we have to you know for for the women and children that we care obviously care so much about in Afghanistan that's th- th- these victims are often you know the the kind of uh, uh, the pretext for all the violence and imperialism and war that we perpetuate. Um, and, and this is the same, it seems to me, kind of moral framing of what is in essence, uh, you know, a whole host of projects, uh, of, of death and destruction, um, that, that are very liberal in the, in their core, you know, and, and, and I wonder how you think of the kind of, uh, I mean, is there dehumanization when we drone all these people in the name of, um, you know, a war on terror and so forth? You know, what is the relationship, do you think, between liberalism and, and contemporary uh, empire and, um, and, and these processes, do you think? Well, you know, liberalism, if we look historically at liberalism, it's, it's an ideological construction on, on my account that is part of its function was to promote oppression and the promotion of oppression produced vast, you know, economic advantages, not just for elites, for ordinary folks. Um, So dehumanization, one would expect, and in fact, historically, it's confirmed historic, historically dehumanization was in the service of liberalism in, in, not exclusively, right? But if we look at the, the the roots of liberalism, we find humanization going hand in hand. We just have to look at the the triangular trade and the way that Africans were conceived and the way that Native Americans were conceived. Um, so you know, I guess I'm just going to say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, George Carlin used to 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 make you know political jokes about how we, we are always bombing brown countries 
and right and you'll, you'll never see us bombing countries that we construe as white we're always bombing the brown countries and and I, and I wonder there right if there if there's some attitudinal um in the same way we talked about the permission, right? The permission is there because we know that the, the, the audience, the spectators, we, oh, those, those are different, you know, those are less than human, those people that are getting yeah. bombed, something no, like that, right? Of course. I mean, you, you have to go to the folk metaphysics there. Brown people are savages. They're inherently bestial. They're inherently inferior if not actually subhuman and all powerful terrorists also of course this this these three these like four yeah. these four these four dudes in a cave somewhere can take down the american empire right yeah sure well i have just one more question uh maybe to wrap things up here uh, uh towards the end of your book you talk about um animals and and how um you know your your conception of you know, dehumanization might apply to uh, things that are actually not human, um, that, that, you know, maybe are quote unquote lesser, maybe are not as intelligent, um, you know, don't, don't inspire certainly the same kind of moral sympathy as, as actual human beings do. And whether, you know, your uh, argument ought to uh, imply a, possibly a greater moral consideration for um you know animals despite being not not human possibly can you speak to that a little sure sure so the notion of the human tends to not be analyzed it's kind of taken for granted being human is our species well scientifically that's problematic it, you can go to the paleoanthropological literature and we find people using the term human for our species or our genus or even more broadly to other hominins. So what's going on there is that human isn't a scientific term. Human is, I think, an ideological construction that grants a certain kind of status on some beings and, and not on others. Um, so the way that works, if, if we take a really broad sweep, is to be human is to be one of us, um, my kind. You know, the, the speaker is never in doubt about their own humanity. They're only in <laughs> doubt about the humanity of others. So what that implies is that attributions of humanness have to do with what beings we identify with and what we don't identify with. And again, this is all politically infused and, and so on. So we draw a circle and different cultures do it differently on the us and the not us in this fundamental and, and radical sense. That's how the notion of humanness works in practice. I'm not suggesting some kind of formal semantic theory or anything like that. But if you just look how the notion of the human lives in the world, I think that's what you see if you, if you look around properly. So um, why does that happen? Well, I think that the way we distinguish human from non-human has to do with a basic and maybe even the central moral problem of being what we are, these reflective 
creatures. That's the problem of killing. You know, like other animals, we have to harm other living things in order to go on living. That's the bottom line. And it's it's no, you know, if you're a vegan, you're still doing it. Yeah. Life feeds on life. You know, they say that uh, the plants, they just don't scream as loudly as the animals, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and well, it, it's almost as if you're, you're suggesting that the fact that we have a conscience, because we reflect, because we can think about the fact that we have to kill to survive, that the conscience itself leads to our psychological need to have dissonance or, or repress or not think about that. And then that can lead to all kinds of dangers. Cause once you've, once you've shifted away the conscience, then you can have all kinds of perverse, you know, yeah. you know, and, well, happen, right? the, what really makes it hard is that clearly we can't kill indiscriminately. Yeah. Right? right. We can't human, the human way of life, which would, and I'm using the term human here, our way of life would simply be impossible as highly social species if we did that. So then we have to make distinctions. And and being what we are, we have to rationalize those distinctions, right? Do, do you have a few more minutes? Because I want to ask you the hardest questions now. Um, <laughs> no, because this is so interesting. Because on the one hand, right, you, you're problematizing the, the the idea of the human in a way that, uh, that you are with, with race, because that ends up functioning in a way, right, that uh, leads to dehumanization, that leads to these problems. Um, and so, as, as Ryan suggested, you know, on the one hand, my instinct to say that g- genocide at the Holocaust is fundamentally morally distinct from killing a bunch of mosquitoes that are pesky, uh, I really want to believe that that's not the same kind of moral uh, action. Um, and yet, you know, I think you're, you're pointing out that that's a, a human construction that justifies certain things and that's dangerous. Um, and so I guess part of my question is, is where do we go from here? How do we, um, we don't like other animals. We're not able to live off instinct alone, right? We, we have to conceptualize. We have to do these things. So how do we do it in a way like, how should, why is genocide bad, David? Like, how do we, right? Like, like, like if it's not, if it's not because there are humans being killed, what, how, how do we construct a moral reality that guides us, you know? Yeah. Well, um, that this will be a more intelligible than to philosophers who are listening than to maybe to others. I, I don't think there are moral facts. Um, I think morality boils down to, what kind of a world do I want to live in? And when you make an assertion about the kind of world you want to live in, you're also making a claim on others because this is the universalization bit, right? So you can't live in the world you, you want, the kind of world you want to live in unless other people pay, play ball. Right. Uh, and, and I think that's it. I don't think there are any facts about mosquitoes being less than their lives mattering less than human lives. That's, that's, that's not a legitimate picture of the natural world. The natural world, the best picture of natural we get is from, from biological science, and there's no room for that in biological science. This is something we impose on that world, and I think that we must. We must. I have this notion I call a necessary illusion. We, we you know, to get by, <laughs> to to maintain a... A, a, 
a way of life that is fitting for our species, we have to have certain beliefs. Now, there are other way, there are other belief systems that do the same job, but it's the function that matters. And those fun, we have to have beliefs that are going to rationalize, make sense of, legitimate certain kinds of acts of of killing. Otherwise, we die. Yeah, you. I mean, especially because the the human beings are uh de facto and you know possibly in theory the sort of like the lords of the earth like what are uh, what we do with our society is going to determine whether or not like almost every species whether or not they live or die and that's that's a that's a question that we can't avoid making a decision on like like because it like we just sort of go on autopilot. It's going to be mass extinction. And, you know, so how, yeah, we how have about to this? accept the. We, we have to offer narratives. How about principles that we create, we make up that life is good, that we are part of life that is interconnected in all these ecological ways. Let's do our best to not fucking destroy that and try to be a part of it in a way that's as beautiful as can be. And, and some some of that beauty will be affirmed in some like the narratives. Some of them that you pointed out, I thought were quite uh, interesting. You know, indigenous peoples who who thought um, that the animals were offering themselves to to them to eat, and they they would honor them and pray for them and say, "I'll meet you in the next life as friends." I, that's a pretty cool way to deal with the necessity of killing other lives, right? As, yeah, as, it is. Right? It's it's every bit as crazy as the hierarchical way. Sure, but it's crazy sure. in a different it's a, way. It's a bit more beautiful, you know. Uh, and so, um, well, well, thank you, David. Is there any last point you'd like to make, or anything else you'd like to say? Because you know. We, we, we know we could talk for hours and hours about this. Such a rich and, and um, um, profound work you've done. So thank you for, for this. But anything you want to say to, to cap it off? Uh, well, I just want to thank you and, and just spend a moment appreciating your engagement with my efforts. Um, and, you know, I think you've evidently you found it worthwhile. I hope others find it worthwhile as well. And I don't look, I don't see myself as having the anything like the final word on this. I'm just trying to start a conversation and throwing out some ideas that I think have something going for them. And I hope other people take them farther and and show me the areas where I'm mistaken. I really mean that. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, David. May the conversation continue. And I'll just say as a, as a last comment, uh, you know, for listeners that I started reading this book being like, oh boy, not some more philosophy. I've had about enough of that in the last <laughs> little bit, but it was like, oh damn, this is, this is pretty good stuff. Um, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's lucid, you know, and I much, I appreciate a lucid philosopher. You know, not trying to pull the wool over my eyes like there's you know, doing no a, there's no unnecessary sentence. Every sentence, you know, it's not it's not verbose. It, it it's there for a reason. It does its work. Yeah, and, and it's 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 go go for the ride, everybody. You'll 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 uh, you'll appreciate having gone on the ride with this brilliant and I dare say lovely and attractive man. So, <laughs> David Livingstone Smith, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.